And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we are reading today Adulthood Rights by Octavia Butler. I did not write a summary this time around, but I kind of feel like I got a general gist. Megs, do you want to say anything in terms of summarizing adulthood rights? Yeah, so Adulthood Rights follows Akeen, who is the son, the first human-born son of Lilith, who we followed in the last book. And essentially, Adulthood Rights follows Akeen, as he grows from infanthood to being a fully mature Onkali slash human hybrid and the trials he goes through as that happens as somebody who's been genetically mutated and is strongly affiliated with both human and Onkali culture. So this is interesting. You call him Akeen, but I have decided in my head that his name is Aiken, and I will probably continue to refer to him that way. They have that whole scene where they specifically talk about the fact that his name is Akeen. Do they really? A-H slash K-E-E-N. Yeah. I think it's Aiken. I'm just going to continue to call him. No, that's wrong. But in my head, he's Aiken. Anyway, yeah. So this, this, like, it's, it's a basically, it's basically about a toddler and half the book is about this toddler who's like really smart and has to deal with all of these really stupid humans who keep killing each other and almost harming him. And he looks like a human, but he's a human alien hybrid, as Maggie has said before. And he's Lilith's child. And, um, I guess not her first child, though. Yeah, not her first child. So we, this is, into the future after Nikanj has impregnated Lilith and she's had several children and finally she's being gifted a boy. That's a big deal, I guess, because she hasn't been allowed to have a boy and she is the first human who is allowed to give birth to a boy. Yeah, it's not just her. Every human has not been allowed to have a boy. There have been boys born with Onkali mothers, but not with human mothers. Yeah, and she says that she would want a boy, but she's only been given daughters, and I I don't understand, and I guess we'll get into it later, but that's a thing. And this is Akeen's story. Oh, Akeen grows up, and he fights for the humans and wants them to have a planet of their own on Mars in which they can mate, because humans have not been allowed to have children unless they do it through Uloi. So the resistor humans, those people that we saw in the last book who kind of dissed Lilith and left, they're still around and allowed to be terrible people, essentially, but they're not allowed to have children. And Akeen decides that that's not okay. Yeah, yeah. So essentially the Onkali culture, as we talked about a little bit last book, there are three different tribes of them, essentially. And one tribe is going to stay on the ship and eventually go back into space and just continue being Onkali as we know it. So Akeen is able to make the case that humans should be given that same chance and that the resistors should be allowed to go to Mars and colonize Mars 
and be allowed to have human children um, that aren't hybrids, even though everyone is very convinced that the same thing is going to happen and it's just going to be war and destruction and they're just going to kill Mars too. Yes, because humans from the Onkali perspective are genetically doomed to kill themselves. Because of hierarchy and intelligence. Yes, the contradiction. Speaking of Akin's mission by the end of this book, I wanted to know whether or not you felt like this could be a metaphor for like race blending like within humans and... If that's the case, whether like we're we're advocating for some races to not, because I don't know, reading it to me, I just remember like having slightly racist grandparents being like, "Don't you want your children to look like you, right?" And it's been theorized, especially around this time and within the sci-fi genre, that we're all going to look a certain way and blend together at some point anyway as the human race. Like we're all going to have darker skin or different types of eyes and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering, and maybe I should have looked this up, like based off of the time period that this was written in, Butler is saying that like some people should be allowed to be isolated and have children that look like them because a lot of the difference here is cosmetic i mean it's not the uncali are very different but like the human problem with the difference is very cosmetic yeah you know that's really interesting because this book something we talked about a lot last time was the fact that butler very much did not bring race into dawn it was mentioned in a couple of different ways but this book deals a lot more heavily with race and with as you're saying and as butler describes it cosmetic differences and i did pick up on that a lot of different ways but i didn't go that far in my analysis i i really was thinking about it more from just that perspective that akin i guess puts it in which is just that they should have a chance to procreate without interference oh. um but I can see where you're coming from with that analysis as well. It's just not what I was thinking about. I think because there is that Onkali sector that is also doing the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. But you're right. It does. There is like this very weird connection to the idea of racial purity in that way that I don't quite know what to do with because Butler is a black woman who's writing in, I think this book is written in like the late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. And it, that seems like it would be a weird thing to be advocating for by any means. And I don't think that's necessarily what she's trying to do, but I don't know. You've stumped me. I think that's an astute analysis, but that's just not, I kind of took Akeen at his word, I guess, because of the own match to that. Part of my my questioning, and I'm not saying that Butler is actually advocating for this. It really was just a question. So listeners, if you have thoughts, let us know, because it was something that was stumping me. But I do know that in, like, in the history of activism for Black rights, Black people have advocated for their own uh, separateness sometimes. That's true. So, yeah, you can see that within the Muslim Brotherhood and things like that. So... Yeah, I didn't know if that was maybe something that was being that influenced Butler and her work. I don't know. If you have thoughts, email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. <laughs> Mags, talking about other themes here, what was your main takeaway from this book? I think we had slightly different themes this time around. I 
my main takeaway from this part of the book. I really read this as a coming of age story in difficult setting because, you know, it does follow Akeen from childhood to adulthood where I think that Butler was dealing with a lot of the same things, but they were getting muddier and muddier, especially because our protagonist is now uh, a male and not Lilith. Lilith has Lilith is not in this book almost at all. She's referenced a lot, but she's not around very much. So the ideas of difference, especially cosmetic and racial differences, and also something I really took away from was stereotyping of how people should behave given a certain set of, in this book, the justification is uh, genetic factors, but really they're like cultural conditioning for what men, women, and in this case, Uloi as well, should be acting like and should be developing as is something I really picked up on. Because when they are creating this new being, essentially, that is half human and half Uloi, or uh, half Omkali, they, all sides, his human parents and his Omkali parents are like, well, he should be doing this, or he should be acting like this. And he doesn't fit that mold because he's a little bit of everything. And breaking down those gender-based stereotypes is something that challenges Akeen just as much as the fact that he looks very different from everyone else and can do different things compared to his human family. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that as much as you did, the part about the different gender stereotypes. I mean, I guess I did, but I didn't pick up on... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But let's go back to what you were talking about with Lilith not being in this book. Did that bother you? It did at first, but I think, and this is totally not like a feminist thing. This is just me as a reader <laughs> and like enjoyment level. For me, this book worked a little bit more than mm-hmm. Dawn did. And I greatly enjoyed Dawn. But for some reason, I really just connected a lot more with the characters on an emotional level in adulthood rights, like there were terrible and awful things that happened in Dawn and they affected me emotionally, but I like cried a little bit in adulthood rights. There were parts where I just felt so deeply connected that from a more feminist lens, yes, the disappearance of Lilith really bothered me and I didn't understand why she had to take such a step back from center stage. But as a reader who was just reading to enjoy this novel, the way it, the way the characters interacted with each other and seeing almost exclusively from Akeen's perspective, especially as a child, had a more emotional impact on me. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Like, the fact that he is a child and it, that it is a coming-of-age story, I think, makes it a little bit more resonant for people like Maggie and I, who are young people. I don't... I don't know, like, and just that concept, like, I found it really delightful, the concept of this, like, tiny toddler thing with all these big little thoughts, like, that really kept me going throughout the entire story. But yeah, the disappearance of Lilith did kind of bother me a little, but it also kind of made sense because it is told through Akin's perspective, and I feel like children are predisposed to just kind of disregard their mothers. Well, to be fair, also... Akeen is ripped away. He's stolen from his family and completely ripped away from Lilith and from uh, all comfort of his entire family for the first half of this novel, essentially. Um, So it wasn't just, I think, that Akeen was disregarding her. Like, he, he was physically taken away. And something I thought was interesting was... The two parents that he, he he really felt the loss of three parents during that. The first was Lilith, because Lilith 
was his safety and comfort. And you really get that right from the beginning. He talks about how as soon he's he's part own collie, so he remembers everything. So he remembers being in the womb and his first moments in the world. And that Lilith's skin is so familiar to him that it feels it takes him a long time to realize that she is not him and that she's a separate being. And he misses her comfort and her sameness to him the most. He misses uh, Dachan, who is his same-sex uh, own collie parent the most. And he misses Tino, who is essentially his human stepfather throughout the first part of the novel. But part of that is not just because he's attached to Tino, it's because he thinks Tino is dead and dead because of him. So I think Lilith's disappearance on that front is interesting because she's in Akeen's thoughts a lot and he misses her desperately. But he also, as a kid, especially as a baby, can't give her that same autonomy that he can when he's an adult and he sees her as being a separate being. Yeah, I mean, he sees her as being a separate being almost from the get-go, but it's just kind of different because I think one of the things that I like as Akeem, with Akeem being a narrator is that he describes people a lot more than Lilith does, I think. And one of the things he says for Lilith here, I, I did this, I did the page numbers this time. Be proud. Let's see, page 257. He, as a child, is constantly tasting people and, like, discovering their genetic makeup because he's a little weirdo like that, and that's what Uncallie do. He shifted his attention from the frustration of what he could not perceive to the fascination of what he could. Lilith's flesh was much more exciting than the flesh of Nikanj, Ahas, and Dikan. There was something wrong with hers, something he did not understand. It was both frightening and seductive. It told him Lilith was dangerous, though she was also essential. That I thought was interesting because we see that idea of Lilith being dangerous more than once with Akeen. And also, like, he seems to kind of relate it to her wandering because Lilith, though she loves all of her children, even though she didn't necessarily consent to having the first one, and even though it is an alien, like, even though it's not all entirely hers, sometimes she gets mad and fed up with, like, Lo and the Ancali, and she goes and wanders and tries to kind of join resistor villages, but then fails. Yeah, something I think is interesting, though, that complicated that for me is that he also makes the same points about Tino and about Tate. There is a certain level in which all humans are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And part of that danger is the fact that, especially with Tino and Lilith, they have become part of this family unit. It's been 30 to 40 years since the first novel has happened. And to a certain extent, they have assimilated and melded in to this new Onkali family. But the part that is difficult is the part where they feel like traitors and they have so much emotion pent up inside of them that in Lilith, you're right, it does express in that wandering. Um, I thought the interesting part was that Akeen is able to sense that danger in Lilith first, like right from the get-go. And he also relates it back to himself because on that same page... He's talking essentially about the fact that Lilith is dangerous uh, because of her ability to cause 
pain and destruction to a certain extent, but he recognizes that same ability in himself because the first time he tastes her, he hurts her. So uh, it says at the top of 257, Akin had not done it again and he had learned an important lesson. He would share any pain he caused best then to be careful and not cause pain. So this is, I think, both an issue that's related directly to Lilith, but it's also one of those things that is related to the contradiction, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I wonder, though, I mean, Akeem recognizes it in Lilith because that's the first human he has contact with directly. But I wonder if, like, Lilith is different from other humans, too, because we've kind of seen that she's more adaptable. And I don't know, does Akeem hint at that? At all? I think he does, because, and I think he does with Tino as well. Ninkanj at some point says that both Lilith and Tino end up being right for this whole situation because they are more adaptable than other humans are. And that's the reason that Lilith was chosen for all of this at first, is because she is one of the most adaptable humans out there. And that's the reason why all of this worked with her as mother. I think something that's also something we need to contend with with this as relation to Lilith is the fact that she is not only in some way genetically different, more adaptable, but she's also been completely ostracized from the other humans. Yeah, so when until Tino comes along. Tino is the first human for a long time to really accept her. No. And even then they're both ostracized. The humans in low accept her. Well, yeah, but I'm I'm sorry. I should say the human resistors specifically target Lilith. Lilith is like something that even after all of these decades is still like a bad word, essentially. Well, okay, so that's interesting. We didn't talk about this as much in Dawn, but like Lilith, historically, we've talked about this on the podcast before, was a mythological creature in Jewish mythology. And she's also known as a demon who gave birth to monsters because after Adam wouldn't let her be on top, essentially, she went and fucked the devil. So we finally, we didn't really touch upon that last episode, but like Lilith, Lilith, the character, starts having a similar sort of mythology in this new earth and she is the mother of monsters (laughs) yeah it was so good hold up i wanna we somehow didn't talk about that before (laughs) well i wanna bring up two passages then from when tino first comes to the village okay so the first is on page 285 and it's from tino's perspective because he is tino has lived with the human resistors his entire life he was one of the very last excuse me, like, true, quote-unquote, truly human babies to be born, it seems like. So he was the last kid for a long time, and now he's grown to adulthood and has pretty much stopped aging like everyone else. Everyone has this, like, at least three to four times the lifespan of a typical human. So he first meets Lilith, and he says... Lilith, unusual name loaded with bad connotations. She should have changed it. Almost anything would have been better. And at first, I thought that was just, you know, an obvious reference to what you're talking about. But then, a couple of pages later, we find out that, uh, 297 it says, I 
I know, and changing it wouldn't do much good. Too many people know me. I'm not just stuck with an unpopular name, Tino. I'm the one who made it unpopular. I'm Lilith Ayapo. He frowned, began, began to shake his head, then stopped. You're not the one who... who... So it's interesting because so much of the reason that humans are kept around, essentially, in the way that they are, is partially to preserve their own cultural nuances. But Lilith has done something that is viewed as being so abhorrent, I guess, that she has somehow taken over the original Lilith in this, like, collective mind, which I thought was so fucking brilliant! Because at first, when I read that passage on 285, I was like, oh my god, are we really gonna be that obvious about it? Like, Lilith, the mother the mother of monsters, like, blah blah blah. And then we got there, and I was like, Pow. Yeah, that's what happened to me, too, and I was like, whoa! Wait a second, she is Lilith! <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was, oh, your analysis of it was a lot more nuanced than mine was, because you have a lot more familiarity with Lilith's initial myth. I really just know her as, like, the mother of monsters, and that's it. Are there any other parallels that you can draw between our lovely Lilith and the Lilith of of origin? Yes, one more before we're, like, done with Lilith, because that's really all I have to say about her. You, of course, are welcome to say other things. Um, But yes, Lilith, the Lilith of origin, is very, very slutty, and that is why she is demonized, because how dare a woman own her sexuality? Or, you know, own any sort of power at all. And our Lilith is such a bad person in part, or it gets conflated with the idea that she's sleeping with the Uloi, which kind of plays into the toxic masculinity and like weird homophobia that we'll talk about later. (laughs) I think that's really interesting too, because even though you're right, that gets conflated with the Uloi specifically. But having said that, for the most part, she's not, she's had many human lovers and that part isn't viewed with the same animosity, shall we say, as her attachment to, to Nika. Yeah, we don't really ever see, so women are like, women are commodities in this new world among the resistors and therefore not always given the same rights. Like women have rights in this world, but they're not, necessarily like out doing the same sort of work and um they are traded among groups of men essentially so but but yeah no one's really ever called a slut for just like sleeping with multiple partners not that we really see that happen that much though because all the woman characters that akeem meets are usually paired off i think it's interesting that you mentioned that something that i thought was really interesting about this novel is that we're able to see what human society kind of looks like when there's no real society. And in some of the human resistor groups, I would say that's true is that women pretty much do have the same rights as they do today, but it's among other resistor groups where it gets kind of dicey. So most of the resistor group that we follow lives in uh, a new version of Phoenix. Um, at least that's what they call it, based strictly off the mythology of, like, coming out of the ashes, not because it's anything really like Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and in that culture, women are valued members of the society, and they do do kind of different work, but then at the same time, the only doctor that they have is a woman, so, like, there's there's good things happening there. Um, and they are at least initially unwilling to trade for women no matter what. Yeah. Uh, it's with other groups, like the initial human group that kidnaps Akeen, that we see trading of women. 
And by the end of the novel, we see really atrocious things happening to women, like women being kidnapped from Phoenix and put in chains and repeatedly being raped and tortured and some very traditional, like dystopian sort of scenes, which makes you feel, at least it made me feel conflicted as a reader, because on the one hand, it was like, we see Phoenix who is trying their best to be the best that humanity can be to a certain extent. And then we see this other side that's really is kind of go in the direction the own collie predict humans will go, right? Like slaves to the hierarchy, slaves to intelligence. One of the first thing humans do is recreate guns. So Mm -hmm. it's the treatment of women is one of the ways in which we see the contradiction take form in... um, vastly different ways i would say depending on which human resistor group you're following or looking at which i think is interesting because in the first book that's more just alluded to based off of like human history and the patriarchy but here we really finally see the contradiction take form and see so much of butler's point that the the hierarchy and the contradiction is so deeply rooted in the patriarchy Yes, yes. And we'll talk more about that, too. But also, like, even Phoenix does succumb. They don't abuse their own woman, but they eventually do go off and raid and kidnap other women. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the creation of guns. Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) Yeah, so Akeen himself views human women and human men differently. And he he points at it more even than he does, like, the Onkali, because, yes, the Onkali are different and genders, but he doesn't like, other than like what sex they're going to become, he really doesn't talk a lot about the different gender roles within the Onkali. Like they are hinted at and other people talk about them, but Akeem himself doesn't. But when he meets a woman, he automatically, like a human woman, he automatically trusts her more for the most part. There are some that don't make that that cut, but like he likes the way that they smell and that's talked about. And when he's older, that it's talked about sexually and like they're just more gentle in his in his eyes and I guess more likely to know how to treat a baby and I thought that was really interesting Maggie's smiling and pointing what do you have to say <laughs> well no I just have the text evidence for that so I think the place where that's most evident is where when Akeen is kidnapped he's with a group of men and some of them are very violent Almost none of them know how to take care of a baby. He eventually finds two or three who had their own children before the war and everything. And they still be- don't know how to take care of a baby. Can we just, like, what? Sorry. Well, one of them doesn't, even though he had kids. Or at the very least, he turns on Akeem so fast once he realizes he can speak. We're going to get to see that. Two of them do know how to take care of a baby. Part of the thing that Akeem was uncomfortable with was that he was being rubbed on the back a lot which with a human baby is how you comfort it. It's just that because he had all those extra own collie sensors, that's what he didn't like. But what I found interesting about that specifically was that they didn't start taking care of him from the beginning. He, as like a baby, had to like win them over to get those two men to take care of him. And for the most part, they were like carrying him about by just like his arm or his leg, which is like... (laughs) But while he's with that group of men, they encounter a, a village, uh, with a Siwatu village, where it's like a mix of English and Swahili being spoken and things like that. And he finally encounters a group of women. And on page 342, he says, 
He liked being with the woman who knew how to lift him without hurting him and who gave him interesting food. He liked the way they smelled and the softness of their bosoms and their voices high and empty of threat. I think that passage really stuck out to me because it seemed so the opposite of what he associates with Lilith specifically. One of the first things he talks about with Lilith is the fact that she can be dangerous or she has that element to it. But for some reason to him, these women are, they're empty of threat. They're devoid of threat, which I thought was interesting. And I don't know if it's just because at the time he was with this like very threatening group of men. And so by comparison, the woman seemed really tame or if it was like something specific about Lilith that made her seem more dangerous. Well, is he tasting the woman? We don't really get to see him tasting this group of women. So I think it could just be a response to the fact that like he's now experienced human males other than Tino. And uh, his first experience really, really sucks because these are just genuinely awful humans. Yeah. But with Lilith, I also feel like Lilith plays more into like the mother bear role. Like she's dangerous, but he never says that he feels danger from her. That's true. In fact, they talk specifically about the fact there's a line that says mother isn't harmless. No, but she finds it convenient to seem harmless. (laughs) So like, I think that Lilith... Yeah, I think it's very much that mother bear sort of situation. Yeah, because that comes up uh, when he, like, realizes that no one's... Because here's another thing. The Uncali decide that uh, Akeem just needs to be left with the humans who have no idea how to take care of him. Uh, and eventually he does find good humans. He finds Tate and Gabriel and, like, yay, Tate comes back. But, yeah, the Uncali, like, decide not to let not to let him come back into the midst. And he's, like, really torn about this at first. And he's like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, like, Lilith is going to come for me. Lilith would never, ever let this happen. He, like, he talks about his family, but it's Lilith who he names. Absolutely. Lilith very much has that place for him. And I think it's interesting because the Onkali ultimately are so terrified of human-born men, um, but also find it important that Akeen develops some of those traits and then ultimately don't know what to do with him, right? (laughs) So, like, one of the places in which they really start stereotyping people, and I mean, this is even, like, this is is light stereotyping compared to everything else that goes on. So, after Akeen is an adult uh, and has really kind of declared his affinity for a human more than Onkali, essentially, because that's pretty much what ends up happening, it says on page 422... Tino and Dichon are talking about him. Well, a 20-year-old human male in a place like this would be exploring and hunting and chasing girls and showing off. He'd been trying he'd be trying to see to it that everyone knew he was a man and not a kid anymore. That's what I was doing. Akeen is still a kid, as you say. He doesn't look like one in spite of his small size, and he probably doesn't feel like one, and whether he's fertile or not, he's damned interested in girls. And they don't seem to mind. Nikaj said he would go through a phase of quasi-human sexuality. So, like, they both value these stereotypical human male things in him and also are terrified of them and don't understand him and end up ultimately wishing he was more Onkali. Well, Dakon does. I don't think... Tino necessarily does, does he? No, Dakon definitely does, though, to the point where he ends up taking Akeen up to the ship to make him more own Kali. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I didn't 
look at that as much as like a problematic thing from Dakon. I more kind of sympathized with him in that instance. Why are you shaking your head? Just because I don't think it's problematic. Mm-hmm. I just, I think that Butler does put us in a binary though, with mm-hmm. how the genders are supposed to interact with each other. Yeah. And the interesting thing comes when Akeen doesn't meet any of those real circumstances, you know, like he doesn't fit into those boxes and those molds that, all of his parents kind of want him to, right? So, like, Tino views Akeen as being similar to how he was when he was a kid, in a way almost to humanize him more, I think, and make him seem more like himself. And then Dakan is also sitting here like, wait, but he's doing nothing that he should be. (laughs) This makes no sense. Uh, Even though Nika told me that he was going to go through this, like, quasi-human sexuality phase. And it's... I, I just found what she was doing really interesting because I think no matter what a lot of parents, when you have kids, you want to be able to see yourself in your kids and therefore you end up putting these stereotypes and expectations on them. Yeah. But by making families so big where you have like five, six parents, all of a sudden you're really able to see, I think, the way that societal expectations shape an individual parent's expectations mm-hmm. and how it can be difficult to navigate when your kid ultimately doesn't fall into any of those categories. Yes. So I also think that's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting how she uses a binary of masculine. Like she presents us two different narratives of masculinity within the Onkali and the humans. And I don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about the Onkali version of masculinity? I do, actually, (laughs) because the Onkali version of masculinity also changes a little bit through these, you know, human owned Kali hybrids. And it's the Uloi who are kind of in charge of managing that. So part of the reason I brought up that first passage on page 422 is because that's Dakon talking to Tino about what he's expecting, right? Mm-hmm. And what he feels should be happening and Tino being like, no, like this is just sort of a human thing. But Akin is internalizing this. Mm-hmm. He is hearing it. He's trying to understand. Nika specifically is trying to explain like, explain to him what's going to come after he goes through his own Kali maturity, essentially. Because in certain ways, he's already mature as a human. He's 20 years old at this point in the book, but he hasn't gone through his metamorphosis. So on page 445, we get Akeen's take on the whole situation and his distress about it and the fact that he doesn't fit in. So we start with, that was the trouble with being small. He was not weak, but nearly everyone he knew was taller and broader than he was and always would be. During metamorphosis, Tikuchak, if it became female, would almost double its size. But he would be male, and metamorphosis made little difference in the size of males. He would be small and solitary, Nikon had said shortly after his birth. He would not want to stay in one place and be a father to his children. He would not want anything to do with other males. He could not imagine such a life. It was not human or Onkali. How could he be able to help the resistors if he were so solitary? So, like, even as he's looking at his adulthood and how he feels about the situation he feels isolated by these expectations not only because they seem contrary to everything both of these societies are in being in groups but then he's also self-conscious about the expectations that are placed upon him just because he's like in very traditional toxic masculinity human terms like he's smaller he looks weak he looks like he could be taken advantage of and he's also i think interestingly disturbed by the fact that he won't want to have anything to do with other males which actually becomes a really big part or at least a part of this novel in the last novel 
there was very much a sexuality binary. But because Tino gets involved in this Onkali family, suddenly he has mates that are also male and things like that and has to contend with that. And so Akian, as someone who's grown up with all of this as being normal, is then disturbed by the fact that specifically he's not going to want to take any part in fatherhood and not want to supposedly have anything to do with other males. And these expectations are all... It feels like overwhelming to him and too much when we're in his head, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting that you brought that passage up because I didn't highlight that one. But I did, when reading this, cling on to the fact that Nikanj... When Nikanj was originally telling Lilith that Akin would be a wanderer, he says that that Akin is going to follow kind of in the footsteps of human males because human males very rarely ever stay, at least in low, within the human family. Like within the Uncali humanoid family setup they usually wander in and out of the village so i thought that was interesting i didn't think of it kind of as neither of it human nor a uncali thing like i just thought that that's what Ninkanj at least thought human men did that they were just naturally non-monogamous even though we do see exceptions with that we see exceptions with that in terms of gabe we see exceptions with that in terms of tino and we ray. see it yeah with ray so I don't know. We see lots of mated human males. See, I had I had taken that more as that Nika had and the other Uloi had decided that genetically they were going to I guess exacerbate the the gene that made males wander more because they for some reason wanted males to be non-monogamous. Well, not for some reason. They want more genetic diversity within this whole situation. Oh. So they need to a certain they need to a certain extent, to have males wander so that there can be more genetic diversity because that's part of the reason they have prints of all of the human resistors. Isn't It isn't so that they, or even why they really care about the human resistors. It's because in order for this whole new population to thrive, they need more than like six humans to be creating all of this offspring. You know, they need that genetic material. Okay, that makes sense. I wasn't thinking that. I just thought that, Akin was special and like he was meant to wander so that he could complete his mission essentially to speak up for the humans. I think that's part of it. But from what I understood, at least from the Uloi's intention, it was just to do the genetic diversity thing. But I think that touches on an interesting point, which is that in the first novel, we see the Onkali as being pretty infallible. And this is the novel where we see the Onkali and the Uloi specifically like, making mistakes. They don't understand what's going to happen. That's part of the reason why they're so terrified of human-born males, because they have to put in a lot more of essentially the contradiction to make it work in their genetic material. Mm -hmm. And they're scared of that. And they're scared of what's going to happen to both Onkali and humans if they put in too much or too little. Um, And we see finally the Uloi as being something less than godly and less than than perfect and all-knowing which i think is part of the reason why akin ultimately is able to convince the consensus or whatever it's called that this human colony on mars should be allowed to thrive because even though it's a minuscule chance that they'll beat their genetic predispositions it's possible and he wants to be able to give them that chance even though ultimately at his heart He's seen the quote-unquote scientific evidence now, and he doesn't think it's going to work. Like, he thinks that they're going to destroy themselves, but he wants them to give them the chance to do it anyways. Yeah, which is horrifying to the Onkali. And the Onkali agree because their constructs kind of agree with Akin. 
Like, they know that this is something humans need, apparently. Well, and they also are able to look at themselves and be like, okay, because we give ourselves this chance, it's fair enough, essentially, to allow this to happen. But you're right, that horror is is deep-seated, and no one actually agrees that it's going to work. And that's yeah. why that's why it makes them so anxious though. Like that's why they sterilize humans because they don't want them to kill each other because the uncolly view death as like this horrible thing. Their entire we talked about this last episode, but their entire purpose like as a species is to keep evolving and to keep changing and learning and living. Like they're set to give their species the greatest chance of life and therefore all species that they interact with because everything they interact with it, it becomes their species which is super interesting once you discover the fact that their ship is eventually going to actually completely destroy earth as we know it yep. and eat all of the wildlife even the and all of the humans even as stuff that we that they've spent all this time regrowing and that's when they have to move on to another species to do the same thing too yep. so they are terrified of death, they don't want it to happen, and yet no matter where they go, ultimately they're going to also be planet destroyers and kill everything. Yeah, that's crazy! So wait, were they gonna just leave the humans there to die, or they just thought that all the humans would have died off by the time that that happened? I don't know, to be honest. I think they were just gonna leave whatever human resistors were left to die, and I think that is potentially also part of the reason that they agree to this whole Mars experiment, Mm -hmm. because then at the very least... They have half a shot in hell, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not a half a shot. Maybe like a tenth of a shot in hell of like surviving this. Um, but I think something also that's important to note about the whole uh, Mars situation is that... Oh my fucking God, I'm going to kill this dog. <sighs> Sorry. She just cannot calm down. I took her for like an hour-long walk earlier. She should be fine. Anyways, uh they're not going to help humans transport themselves to Mars. They refuse to do anything except for help make Mars, like, bare bones livable to be colonized, and then they're out, which is less than they even did for the human resistors on Earth, right? Mm. Like, they're... The human resistors on Earth have been at least kind of genetically modified because they've been sterilized, which is terrible. But they've also been given longer lives and at least, like, some stuff to help them adapt to Earth. And the Uncali is like, fine, we'll let you do this, but, like, you're getting nothing out of us. Well, they're Akeen allowing is going- the constructs to do it. Yeah, they're allowing the constructs, specifically Akeen, to help, mm-hmm. but the but they also don't have the powers of, like, an Uloi, right? Like, Uloi's are the one who ultimately have the power to make this easier. The constructs can do more than a normal human can, but, like, the true quote-unquote Onkali, like, hands off, we'll let you do this, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna give you anything except for the constructs to help you. And even that's only really who Akeen can convince (laughs) that it's worth it, you know? Not only of the humans, but also of the constructs. A question I have for you about this whole Mars situation, Akeen, after he first brings up this as a possibility, faces a lot of resistance because it's not Earth, and the humans feel like they are specifically owed this new version of Earth. And I just wondered what you thought about this. This doesn't really have anything to do with feminism. This is just me <laughs> thinking about thinking about the book in general and like how you felt about that and whether you would, if you were in the situation, whether you would want Earth or whether you would want Mars. And like, 
I don't know. I thought that reaction was really interesting and also kind of wasn't what I was expecting, the direction I was expecting the book to go. I thought that it made sense that the planet was Mars specifically because, like, we've always, I don't know, I I feel like growing up with climate change, we have always thought that Sorry, okay? I must have, I, I think I phrased my question badly. Oh, okay. I'm wondering whether, what you thought about the fact that human resistors wanted to specifically keep Earth and were pissed off that they were kind of being given Mars as a way to keep going. No, I think that makes sense. I think that that's something, so I, no, the, here, wait, wait, hear the whole answer out. So like, as someone growing up with climate change, we've talked a lot my entire life humanity as a whole or joked about the idea of going to mars and leaving earth behind and i think that there is pushback to that idea people are like well why don't we just take care of our earth and like it's ours and this is the planet that we grew up on i think the human resistors being mad about that makes sense um i also think that I mean, I know from the text that a lot of the human resistors just don't believe it because humans have a really hard time contending with space in general. And we saw this in the first book, Dawn. We saw, like, humans couldn't accept the idea of extraterrestrial life. And that's still what some of the resistors are doing. Like, they have no... Some of them refuse to believe in a world outside of the one that they know. It just can't exist. I thought... I agree with you. Fun fact, the first woman on Mars is going to be from Washington State because they're planning that, uh, which is kind of cool. But um, I think that ultimately, if I was in that position, I think I would have been with Tate, who is excited about the scenario. And I think for me, part of it was because humans had proven that they couldn't take care of planet Earth at this point. It was a mix. It, like, ultimately what killed them was World War Three, essentially. But mm-hmm. there is a lot of, I think, hints in this novel that climate change was a large part of what happened here. Yeah. And Kate's view on it, from my perspective, seemed to be kind of like, honestly, we know we can't beat the Uncali at this point. So yeah. I feel like we should kind of take this chance that we're being given and run with it. And so on the one hand, I also identified with the human resistors who were angry about it. I really identified with the people who were like, you're just fucking with us as much as it hurt me because Akeen was so upset about it. Um, But I think ultimately, if I was in that position, I would have been with Tate and just kind of been like, ultimately, we are being given what we want, which is a chance and a chance to just procreate and like, from Tate's perspective, for her to be able to, like, just have a baby with Gabe, for example. But it took me a lot of thinking to get there, and I was just, I don't know, I just found it to be a very fascinating conversation, and I was sad when that conversation ultimately devolved into the biggest act of violence that we see throughout these two novels, where lots of people die, lots of women specifically are kidnapped and tortured essentially because of this whole decision and as much as I wanted I was excited for humans to kind of get this chance when that was the reaction it also made me feel like oh my god like (laughs) you've just been given this fresh chance and you're already kind of fucking it up with all Mm -hmm. of this bullshit like why why 
Yeah, I don't know. I think if it were me, if I were living this scenario, I probably would have joined the Uncali. But I don't know. I'm heavily influenced by this book. And I'm just like, this is a nicer species. <laughs> Ultimately, that's how I feel as well. I I would have been one of those people who like did not care about being a gender or like a gene trader or whatever. I would have just been like, okay, that's this is fine. fine. <laughs> this is my only choice. This like means that I don't have to deal with all of these other things going on. Sure. <laughs> I wonder though if part of that is because right, like we're living almost uh, over forty years after this novel was initially written. And at the time, scientifically, gene modification, something we haven't touched on yet, is that genetic modification of anything in any one is really, really new and really terrifying to people in general at this point in history. Mm. Whereas now, 40 years later, not even talking about GMOs because people have lots of opinions about that, <laughs> but like the idea of being able to look at someone's genes and understand whether they might be born with a disability or be born with Down syndrome or something is really commonplace now. And I think is something that is viewed with slightly less terror by the general public who yeah. is used to it. So I think also it's easier for you and I to say that we would join the own colony because now 40 years in the future, like genetic modification is a pretty normal part of our society and, like, clones are coming into being and stuff. They officially cloned a sheep in China a couple of years ago. So, yeah. like, it's more it's more an accepted and normal part of our day-to-day -day life. And I wonder if – I read this 40 years ago when any kind of genetic modification was really new, if this whole concept would have seemed a little bit more terrifying to me than it is as someone who's growing up right now where, like, all of this stuff seems fairly commonplace and that's not to make sweeping generalizations to say that everyone's okay with genetic modification i i know that it's still highly contentious yeah and that people have a lot of opinions about it but it does seem to me that the general terror level about it is down <laughs> yeah well yeah because we are actually doing it now and they were doing it too back then or studying it like on, in small ways whenever you farm you're doing genetic modification to a certain extent but but I think it was less wide sweeping and made people feel a lot more panicked about the future. Yeah. Yeah. Because then, you know, you could do things like what Hitler was trying to do, essentially. Like you could breed, you could breed if you wanted. And this is still something that is talked about in the modern age. Like, you oh, can, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you can create more class disparity this way. That's kind of already happening without the help of um, genetic modification. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's why I'm saying, like, I'm not, I know that there are lots of issues within this topic and that it's not just hunky dory. I'm yeah. just saying that the general panic level, like, it's, it's more normalized now that this is happening and that this is something science can do. No, I agree. I'm just kind of talking through that, like, for myself because I didn't consider that. I think my perspective on it, um, as someone that's not very science-minded and doesn't have to deal that much with scientific topics in my everyday life, was that there perhaps... Well, no, that there is, that there is, like, a larger consensus of people who tend to value things that the Uncali value a little bit more through, like, just general understanding, not to say that there aren't people who don't value those things, but, like, there's more people who want to, like, protect the Earth because we have to face that. And there's more people who I think value empathy directly and who think about, um, yeah, I don't know, just being conscientious and life, 
I don't know if that's like a really ageist perspective though of me to be like, oh, this wasn't happening 40 years ago. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I mean, empirically, the world is getting better, largely through the acceptance of more scientific things. Like, the amount of children under the age of five that died in 1990 was like 12 million, and a couple of years ago, it was cut in half because of accepting things like this. Like, the world is becoming a better place because... It doesn't feel like it. Well... (laughs) I can't get too much into it or else I'm going to reveal where I work. But the the evidence for the most part shows that the world is getting better, but people view it as getting worse because the people who care a lot about all of these things aren't being exposed for the most part to the data, which shows the ways in which things are improving, Um, which is sort of a tangent based on your initial point, but I think that it's because of all of those things that the world is becoming a a more accepting place. And I don't think that's necessarily ageist. I think that part of it is that we live in the age of information. And while that can be a really bad thing, I think that ultimately it does broaden people's worldviews and does make people more accepting of, of differences and more accepting of what the future can bring in a positive way. Okay. Yeah. Yay. I'm not ageist. That's just my take on it, but I don't know. That's something that's something I I work with a lot is uh, that idea. That's good to know, everyone. Remember that the world isn't actually getting worse. Although maybe it's good that we think it's getting worse because then we're more likely to like try and take action. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, <laughs> the ways in which the world is getting better are broad sweeping, but not, you know, universal. Like climate change is getting worse and things like that, you know? So like I'm not trying to say that everything is getting better, but there are lots of human injustices in the world that are improving at rates previously unseen in history and i think that's that's nice to know it's comforting to know that things are getting better even if they aren't happening we do as not fast have as we to... wish they would yes i agree we do not have to succumb to the contradiction in a world of what are yous welcome to the place where the answer is always human my name is natalie and i'm the host of some kind of brown i was born and bred in the southern bible belt of the u.s and if you know anything about the south growing up multiracial was some kind of an experience join me in this community where i share my stories am joined by guests who share their own and talk about pop culture events that affect us as mixed people you can find some kind of brown on twitter instagram facebook and most places you find podcasts i'll see you there with some more shades of brown Is that an ice cream? <laughs> Want to talk a little bit about Tate, just because I know that you are really into Tate. <laughs> <laughs> she came back. See, it was smart of me to be into her from the beginning. Y'all didn't so know wanna... she was coming back. I know. <laughs> so I'm interested. I'm interested in what you thought about her character development because she seemed she seems different in a lot of ways in this novel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also talking about the fact that the humans are really paired up and stuff and seem to be in a lot of ways mated for life, given the fact that Tate and Gabe, at the very least, have been together for a really fucking long time. Mother. I hate Gabe. Just just so everyone knows. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, they've been together for a really long time, 
with Akeem, she's able to a certain extent to open up to the fact that like she as an individual would have been more receptive to the Onkali and to the Uloi and stuff, which is a side of her we really didn't get to see a ton of in the mm-hmm. first novel. And I was just wondering what you thought about her character development and growth, because I felt contradictory about it, but I also felt kind of indifferent to her in the first novel. So I was interested to see what you thought, because I know that you liked her a lot. Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts. And first of all, my first thought upon seeing Tate uh, from Akeen's perspective is that apparently she's a little blonde woman. And apparently this was mentioned in Dawn, but I'm not someone who picks up on descriptive details very much. And it was not, I think, as descriptive as it was with Akeen. But my friend Catherine has told me that apparently this was mentioned in Dawn. But I pictured her as like a lean, kind of sporty, um, darker skinned woman, like someone a little bit more like Lilith in terms of appearance. And that was interesting to me. And then my second perspective was that like Tate was harder and rougher around the edges than how I remember her being in the first novel. In the first novel, she was kind of like flighty and annoying in a way that like I found endearing because I was like, ah, yes, ADD person. I love that. Very honest. And I thought that, yes, she would have been adaptable. And that was talked about in the first novel. And Gabe essentially fucked things up. And the big betrayal for me with Tate was that she chose Gabe, even though she could have had a healthy life with the Uloi. And it meant, like, betraying her best friend. I liked this novel more because it gave her a redemption arc. Uh, arc for Tate. Yeah, I like this novel more for Tate because it gave her a redemption arc. And it kind of showed that she didn't hate Lilith in the way that everyone else did. But it also really made me mad because she doesn't always stand up to Gabe. And Gabe is such a dumbass sometimes. And it's just like, girl, you don't have to, like, accept this. Like, you don't have to be with someone who's, like, got all these toxic masculine traits. Like, I understand you love him and he's, like, not bad to you. But, like, he's just such a, ah, sometimes. And he's, like, genuinely got a good heart. And I'm not saying that, like... Men who do this don't have good hearts and we should be forgiving of men with good hearts. But like he is such compared to Tate, he's just so close minded. I think something I found really compelling about Tate in this for in the second novel compared to the first novel is that in the first novel, Kate or Tate is described very explicitly as being manipulative. And yeah. in fact, there's a whole passage about the fact that she would have made a good Uloi because she's so manipulative. But this novel really made me think about that descriptor, especially in regards to women, because all we really see ever is Tate getting manipulated. And the fact that... How is she manipulated? I think Gabe manipulates her all the time by taking away her voice, by using his kind of power over the situation to take away her choice. Mm -hmm. I think that... When they killed Joseph, which was the real reason ultimately that Tate didn't end up staying with the Onkali, I think, because she felt like she could never go back to Lilith and that society after they had hurt her so badly. I think that we see Tate getting manipulated more often than we do see her being manipulative. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it made me think about the fact that I think a lot of times in society we describe women as being manipulative when in fact they're just trying to get through the world with as much of their own willpower intact and without being manipulated by the people around them. Um, 
Tate, in many ways in this novel, still has a lot of voice and a lot of power. She is one of the female leaders of the Phoenix, I would say. Mm -hmm. And she is very strong in being able to stand up to especially people who want to hurt Akeen specifically. But then also, to a certain extent, the other construct children who we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. But ultimately because she loves Gabe or because she feels stuck with Gabe or some mishmash combination of all of those feelings, she is constantly being manipulated by his wants and his desires. Or influenced, I would say. Or influenced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the manipulated is maybe kind of a strong word. It's just the one they use in this novel. I think influenced probably is a better word, but... At the end of the day, what is the difference between influence and manipulation besides intent? You know? Well, I don't know that... I guess my... I don't view Tate as being manipulated by Gabe because I feel like she's too smart. And there's a separateness and sort of, like, resentment she has towards Gabe. I think she's, like... She sees that he's stupid and resistant to change and actively chooses to be with him. But I don't see him... Well, no, I guess you're right. You're right. Because there's that time where he tries to touch Aiken and Aiken like almost stings him with his tongue or something like that. And then, yeah, he's like, oh, God, this has happened to me. And Tate's immediately like, did you do this to him? Which I feel like she wouldn't normally come to that conclusion because she knows Akeem and knows that's not. Or even the fact that so Tate falls because she essentially is exhibiting some of the first symptoms of Hutchinson's disease. Um, and she gets extremely injured and she's going to die if Akeen doesn't heal her. Which is a, an interesting point in the novel because up to this point we're told only Uloi can heal. And ultimately it turns out that only Uloi tend to heal because they're essentially just better at it. And there's less but, risk associated. And there's less risk associated with it. Um, but even then... There is part of Gabe that is kind of trying to convince her out of it. Like, Tate is really set in the fact that she's going to be healed. And she's mm-hmm. like, of course, if Akeen can heal me, I'm going to let him heal me. Wow. But Gabe is... The woman he loves is going to die. And Gabe is still resistant to the idea that Akeen can heal her. And that there are beings out there that can fix her. Mm-hmm. And it's only to the point where he has to, like, give his okay essentially even though she is already consented verbally and strongly twice and he feels fucking bitter about it because i think and he almost screws it up and he almost screws it up and i think that there is at least part of an implication in their relationship that he's so bitter about it and almost fucks it up because he's used to ultimately getting his way Mm -hmm. you know Yeah, because we live in a society where, I mean, at this point, they do live in a society, even in Phoenix, where the women are slightly more submissive. Which also really hurts me, because I feel like Tate is not that character and has never been the submissive party as a human. No. And yet, is seems intent for whatever reason on just following Gabe until the end of the Earth. (laughs) But it's because she associates Gabe with humanity, and she's going to choose humanity at the end of the day. Uh, yes. As we were saying, Tate and Gabe, I forget what we were talking about. (laughs) Oh, we were talking about the fact that Tate 
has never seemed like a submissive character, but would follow Gabe to the end of the earth because at the end of the day, she's committed to choosing humanity over everything else. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's what she said. Um, and it's kind of nice to see her and Lilith reunited. Lilith is like reasonably kind of very upset. Yeah. Still pissed off. But then she offers Tate to come and you can see that Tate wants it in part. But maybe- it just makes Gabe all the more frustrating. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Gabe is just frustrating. And it's hard, too, because, like most people, Gabe isn't actually, like, a bad person. And his heart, I guess he does bad things, but, like, most people aren't monsters and not trying to do bad things necessarily. Like, people are ultimately trying to be good people. And, like, we see Gabe bond with um, Akeen, and it's sweet. And, like, we see him stand up for Akeen sometimes. But at the same time, it's like, it's you're, you're it's just not good enough. It's like, at the end of the day, you're still being an asshole and you're affecting people. And like, he didn't mean to fuck things up so much. It's just, ugh, it's annoying. Lady, it you deserve annoying. better. You deserve better than a Gabe. I think the parts, something I find difficult to contend with in this novel is, and something I see specifically this contradiction in Gabe, is this idea that, everyone wants to be a parent because in this society because suddenly you can't be a parent everyone wants to yeah and i think that there is something to that right like people might not want something until the choice to do it is taken away from them and then all of a sudden you want what you can't have like that's that's real right that's humanity (laughs) but i it does make me wonder if gabe hadn't had the choice taken away from him if he would have wanted to be a father because for him it is i think a lot more work to be a father figure to Akeen than it is for Tate to be a mother figure to Akeen. Tate takes to being Akeen's adopted mother for the point where he is living with them very easily. And she knows how to comfort him and figures out how to take care of him and how to feed him and at least tries to listen to him, especially after he becomes an adult. She tries really hard to listen to him. And for Gabe... It's, it feels to a certain extent deeper than just the fact that ultimately Akeen isn't 100% human genetics. Like, he really, Tate has to force them together and Tate has to make them bond. And it's not until Gabe brings Akeen scavenging for the first time and they're able to get away from the pressures of how almost a father should treat their son or their child that they're able to bond at all and they're able to have a real conversation. So that's also something that struck me about this novel is that like Gabe, I think in many ways acts like someone who has parenthood thrust upon them, even though deep down they might not want it, which is complicated by the fact that Everyone kind of wants to be a parent now because no one can in the human resistorhood. Yeah. And I think they also want to be a parenthood parent now because, like, um, you know, there's nothing. No, because there, there's no other way to continue their species. And because there aren't, like, things like capitalism, like, there's no other way for them to have worth. Yeah, they... There's a lot of what's-the-point talk if you can't have children. Like, you build things... And then you sit around and you use the things you build and then you build more things and you squabble with people. But like the humans that are left feel very much like, what is the goddamn point if I can't? Well, because there's nothing, there's no future generation, which, 
yeah, like there's, I haven't always wanted to be a parent and I'm still like sort of undecided now, like if that's something that will be in my future. But I think even at any point, even when I didn't want to be a parent, the idea was that like future generations will have a chance to benefit from my work. And I think that's a big motivator for a lot of people. Oh Um, yeah. I'm not saying that's like a bad thing. I just think it's interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing either. Yeah. I just think that that's something to keep in mind. Like it's not, I'm not trying to diss people who don't want to have children, but yeah, I think that's also part of it. It's the idea that like no one will be there to enjoy the, the labor. Which I think is also interesting, though, considering the fact that the humans are going to live for another couple of centuries, <laughs> too. Because, I don't know, it just I, I think it really drives down to that evolutionary need, ultimately, as a species to continue for something else. Because arguably, they should just keep making things better for themselves, for the right? Like yeah. Because they're going to be there for another 300 years. Yeah. So, I just thought it was... I thought it was well done and a useful perspective to have in the novel. And I also appreciate the fact that Butler did not hark on that point either. It was brought up maybe like two or three times as being like, well, what's the point if there's no one to inherit this? Um, But yeah, it just made me think about like, again, coming back to consent. Oh my God, (laughs) I am struggling today. My microphone won't stay where I want it to be. My dog won't shut the fuck up. It's been a time. Um, it brings me back to the initial point about consent, about the fact that, like, coercion isn't really a choice, but mm-hmm. also having no choice isn't a choice as well. You yeah. know, like, they aren't given a choice, and suddenly they wish, I think many of them wish they just had it, right? Even if they decided not to be parents, it's the fact that the choice to be parents was taken away from them. Like, that's the injustice here, which is yeah. totally legitimate. Um, and I think something also that Akeen struggles with. Akeen is human and he for the most part is really good about taking consent from people but there are two key points in this novel relating to tate and gabe where he throws their consent away or wants to and it's when he's saving their lives both times oh yeah that's because, true because akeen is going to save their lives even though it's abhorrent to them and even though it's possible especially with gabe that he would rather die than be genetically modified and Akeen is aware of that to the point where he talks about the fact, like, he he consciously thinks about the fact that he's taking their consent away. So, like, please just let them give it to me, you know? Yeah, because that's the uncalli in him. He values life more than consent. Which I think brings up, like, interesting things when we're talking about today in society when we're, like, uh, euthanasia and stuff. Yeah. Well, also even just with, like, the Good Samaritan Law, it wouldn't apply here, right? Because the two patients, quote unquote, in question were conscious and would have been able to consent or not consent. But even in our society, it is implied that if you, unless you have assigned like DNR on you, if you are unable to respond that you want to live and that your life should be saved and that that's Mm -hmm. like the consensual choice, you know, even to the point where if it comes out that you save a life and you, and that person did ultimately have assigned DNR, if that was not clear, like on their body, which why the fuck would it be for the most part? Like you are still as the person who saved them, not held accountable for that because the baseline that everyone assumes human or own collie is that like, if you have a life, you probably want it to be saved, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I'm good, but I know there are things that you wanted to talk about. All right, let me let me skim. Let me skim and see. So, Lilith's disappearance. I wanted. Oh, well, we are. I already. I feel like I already talked about Lilith as and Aiken's difference as narratives narrators a little bit, in that he's just more descriptive. Oh, but also I wanted to talk about the fact that Lilith comes out the world a lot less. She comes at it with a lot more assumptions than I think Akeen does because Akeen is like taking all of this information because he can remember everything and he is like he's geared towards learning and I think that Lilith for a human is as well but she also like she assumes that the Oncali mean her ill will when they don't a lot of the time and assumes that they're judging her and She's a lot more closed-minded than Akeem as a narrator, I, I feel. Do you have any thoughts on that? I would agree with you. I think that is for probably two purposes. One, that, you know, she is a fully formed adult human who has yeah. had a whole life before <laughs> all this happens. But two, that she's a female. And I think that a lot of times female and female identifying people are trained to think that the world has ill will toward us to a certain extent and that, <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly and that and especially that everyone is judging us and i think that akeen is a a baby so like mm. babies just absorb shit that's what babies do uh yeah. but b he's also male and male identifying you know like yes. that's his that's his whole deal. And that's actually kind of rare among the Onkali, mm-hmm. where all Onkali children are referred to as being Ika. Yeah. So something we haven't touched upon so far is the fact that one of the sacrifices that is made on Akin's behalf when he is abandoned to the humans is that he is not able to form to the correct bond with the Onkali-born sibling he's supposed to have, which is most likely... which is kind of supposed to be a sister, but ends up because they don't have this bond choosing to be male because Mm -hmm. it really is Ika. It is sexless until it metamorphosizes in a way that Akin is not. Um, Most Onkali children, they really are Ika. They are sexless child until they metamorphosize. And Akin is not partially because he's human born and he's human born with all of the, uh, corresponding parts and he's assumed to be cis the the entire time um but like he isn't given that same choice to choose who and what he wants to be when he grows up essentially in the same way that his sibling is in the same way that most onkali children are um but it also means that he's being deprived of the person who is supposed to be part of his like adult family like one of his mates right because even though there's no sexual relationship between Uncali siblings as adults they are still referred to as being mates with the uloi in the middle so like they really deprive him of a lot more choice than they seem to be aware of almost you know like they know they're fucking him up when they leave him with the humans and which is why his his like nuclear family protests against it so much but it has such far-reaching and such sad implications for him. And he is so sad later in the novel as an adult when that happens. Like, and he doesn't have a relationship with that sibling that he's supposed to. Because they're physically repelled from each other because they weren't given the opportunity to 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 bond. bond. So it hurts the sibling, too. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. We just get Joaquin's perspective on it more because the sibling is so repelled. They're so repelled from each other that it is barely it. And then ultimately he is barely even in the novel. Yeah. What do you think the importance of Joaquin being male was? Like, I, I don't know. Why why did a male need to come in and speak for the human resistors? And why was it why was that so important that we have this narrator be male? Oh, see, I that's a really interesting question because you're right, and that I think it was important that the that a male spoke for the human resistors, but I more saw it again as the idea that it was important that Akeen be the narrator because it was important to see for us to see someone struggle directly with the contradiction in human genetics. Mm-hmm. But is it more present in ma- in like males? Like, cause I feel like that's something well, that's, that's yeah. the implication throughout the entire novel is that they have to add essentially more of the con- genetic contradiction into human born males than they do to anyone else. And that scares them. Yeah. Nika yeah. spends a lot of time talking about that. So why, I don't know. Like why, why do men have to be dangerous? Because I feel like we do see, like, on Kali, men aren't dangerous. Dakan is fine touching Tino. Dakan loves his children and, like, wants to raise them. And he loves bonding with other men. I loved him so much. <laughs> Just to put it cheer. out there. We saw so much more of him in this novel, and it was so pure and precious. <laughs> But that's like, that is the stereotype for uncolly men is like this pure preciousness. And it's I like, why why can't human men be that way? And I, I wonder too, like I wrote in, at one point while I was still reading the novel, whether or not Akeen was supposed to be like the anti-toxic masculinity because Akeen like does think about things and does empathize. But it's also important that he's dangerous somehow. Like, I'm just so confused as to why we need to value danger at all. I don't know. Like, I could pull up the parts in the text where Nika's talking about it, but I think... I think it's because they're not trying to turn humans into something they're completely not, you know? Like, I think that there is... They talk in the first novel about the fact that if they had had just a little bit more intelligence or a little less hierarchy, this wouldn't have happened. So I think ultimately it's trying to find in Akeen and all of these human-born males, because it's mentioned briefly later in the novel that after Akeen there are more human-born males that have have come into being, that that exist now. (laughs) I think it's about trying to create that genetic balance where you're getting the best of both worlds almost where it's like you're able to increase intelligence, but decrease hierarchy, but not just do one or the other. It's about trying to find the thing that made humans in the own mind almost have it. Okay. So do we, I thought we saw like the quote unquote hierarchy in Akeem when he's like demonizing the humans a little bit for, for doing crude things. And then he overcomes it by empathizing with them. Is that what you took away too? Yeah. And I think we also see it because he also doesn't understand for a long time, the Uncali traditions at all. And he ends up kind of demonizing them as well, especially Mm -hmm. the Uloi because he doesn't understand them. And when he goes up to the ship, the same thing happens. He 
fits into their society, he empathizes and he overcomes. I think that a lot of what this novel and these novels end up being about is that empathy is kind of the way forward. And that could just be me. My like professional research is all about empathy. So this could just be me like mapping, <laughs> mapping onto this novel a little bit, what I want to see. But I think that part of Butler's point is that the way to overcome this hierarchy, both racial and gender based, is through empathizing and that I think there's also something really important being said about Akeen in the sense that ultimately the Onkali are the ones who hurt him because they were most of the people who decided that he needed to be left with the humans and he really struggles with that as we just touched on but he also struggles with the fact that it was voted to abandon him there for three years and that people chose that for him. Mm-hmm. And he was ultimately able to use empathy to even overcome that hurt and that injustice to understand the way that both of these societies and cultures work together without, I think, losing his justifiable anger at what was done to him and his own feelings about the situation. And I think that it was all of those things put together that they were hoping to get out of a human born male and that Akeen ultimately creates, which is the fact that it is possible to have these traits within you and to overcome. And I'm hoping, I haven't started Imago at all, which is the third book here, but I'm hoping that between kind of seeing Akeen in many ways overcome the contradiction and giving humans a second chance that we're going to end somewhere kind of happy where we prove it is possible to overcome the contradiction or else this is going to be a very bleak third novel. (laughs) We'll see. One more point that you kind of led into with your talk of empathy. I was also fascinated by the way Onkali sex works essentially or like even Onkali union because while Akeen is on the ship he finds an Akeen Akaj? Akaj? Is that what it's called? Yeah, which is the third group of Onkali that are going to, like, stay Onkali and leave Earth. Kind of, yeah. But this one this one is older than any of Akin's parents. And yes. is, it's alluded to that it's, like, kind of what Dakan is related to. Like, that's where his family's lineage was. Yeah, the, the old version of Onkali kind of, but pre, pre-human. Yeah, well, we, we find that, like, apparently, yeah, Onkali were like that, and then they discovered humanity. They couldn't talk at all. They were just, like, these, like, worm things, and then they discovered humanity and started breeding themselves to be, like, more human and more palatable. Yeah, more palatable to humans. But then they developed, like, human, like, not human language, but they developed Onkali verbal language, which wasn't something they had before. But anyway, it's really interesting. Um, Akeen has this moment where he, like, he has this unity with the Akaj, and he loses himself in it. And it's kind of something that, like, you know, is described, like, when you you take acid, you have, like, the ego death. You feel one with the universe and all that's within it. Maggie's laughing at me so much right now. But that's the thing. Or, you know, you could also, like, become ultra, oh, God, we're all, like, so different but that's that's something that happens when your brain breaks like that and it's beautiful but also you can follow us at rebel girls book club on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook 
at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.